welcome to The Prestige, a podcast about films and filmmaking. This season, season three, we're going month by month looking at the work of different directors and each week we take a different film by that director and review it and talk about it, including some of the themes it might throw up. As regular listeners will know, I've been absent for the past while. Um, Chris McLennan has ably stepped into my shoes and I'd like to thank him for that. Um, Chris and Rob have been talking about the work of Wes Anderson. There have been some interesting ideas thrown up by that. I urge you to go back and listen to it. Uh, Our final director in season three is Alfred Hitchcock. And more on that later. We'll be starting with this week. Before we continue with that, uh, I've been gone a while, Rob. So what can you fill me in on? What have you been watching? I mean, obviously, I've been talking about a lot of that on the previous shows. So what I will talk about is the one film that I've seen this week that I actually saw yesterday. Um, I made a, a, a rare trip to cinema. Um, this was an invite from a, from a friend, so it wasn't something that Sarah and I took a trip to go and see. And I caught up with the fifth instalment of the Conjuring series, The Nun. It is important to say I have never seen any of the first four of this series. Um, So I picked up with The Nun, which appears to be a spin-off, the backstory to a bad guy. Um, It's a better tale of nuns in the 1950s in Romania um, and their work kind of keeping a demon, I think, at bay, and the possession of the nuns thereforth. It's a standard gothic schlocky horror film. It isn't anything special. It's almost, I'd say, actually quite bad. Um, it's neither scary nor effective. Somehow the the script itself lets it down. The characters are neither believable nor interesting, um, and at least one of the main characters is to the point of actually wishing him to die, um, which he doesn't. So... <laughs> It is not one I can recommend, really. If you're into the series, I'm sure if you've seen all four Conjurings up until now, um, it may be right in your wheelhouse. Maybe it's one to check out on Netflix. But I really wouldn't recommend making the trip to go and see it in the cinema. This sounds great. It was. It was It, it, it was. It was fun to get out of the house. But, uh, yeah, I wish it was something else. <laughs> right, okay. I have been... Well, as I said, I've been absent for a while, so I've had time to consume various... Uh, sorts of media I thought I'd give a sort of rundown of a top five I've been watching um, at least a couple of these I know will appeal to Rob and one of them maybe not um, so I the first thing I've done is I finally finished a series that I started I mentioned it on a much earlier podcast it's Jessica Jones that the second series of which I've been watching sporadically, it being fairly violent, so I don't particularly want to watch it when my son's around. So it was a case of 20 minutes a week. It wasn't going very fast. So I finally finished that. Um, I saw a programme which I have a feeling Rob would love called Sugar Rush. A Netflix original, incredibly overproduced original it kind of looks like looks like an American version of the Bake Off, and it's terrible and brilliant, and you should watch at least one episode. I I know the show. I've seen some of it. It isn't it, it isn't my speed, shall we say? Um, <laughs> but uh, I know the show certainly. 
Right. I, I, yeah, I thought it was enjoyable, but I don't particularly want to watch any more of it. Um, I re-watched for the umpteenth time the Quentin Tarantino Inglorious Bastards. I just want to dwell on the fact that the opening scene of that film is just amazing. Sort of top five scenes of cinema ever is Christoph Waltz in having seen with Glorious Pastors. Um, I saw a film which is the sort of fairly enjoyable fluff that I will like watching because it's an action film, but would actually be a very good film. It's The Hitman's Bodyguard with uh, Ryan Reynolds and Samuel L. Jackson. Um, and it was funny and violence in the right places and well it didn't take itself too seriously it was quite enjoyable and finally i read a book because it wouldn't be me if i didn't add a book in into this top five um read the book this is going to hurt by alan Kay. it's about his life as a junior doctor which he was until a few years ago um and he is now a screenwriter for tv but he worked as a junior doctor for some years, so it's his memoirs, his diaries of his time in the NHS, and it's often very funny, sometimes poignant. The ending, after you thought it was going to be a really funny, uplifting book, was quite tragically poignant and terrible, and it, it possibly the fact that I had about three hours sleep for a week it just made me cry um but yes utterly brilliant so a couple of, of, of gems in there and then a couple of things like sugar rush that it kind of felt like watching sugar rush felt like eating one of those awful brightly colored american cupcakes kind of quite fun but then you think oh my god there's so much sugar my head has just fallen off so, fun fact, I, I have met Adam Kay. Oh. Um, I met Adam Kay way, way back because he went to Imperial College. Um, where, he did. Where one of my best friends went to be, a, trained to be a doctor. Um, and before he was a doctor, before he was a comedian writer, he was in a comedy band called Amateur Transplants. Um, he was. They did a brilliant version of Going Underground. They did, and they released a whole album. Um, of medically themed and certainly inappropriate humour. Um, and whilst his compatriot in Metroplots did go on and is still a GP, I believe, um, he left it. So I, I did meet him way, 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 way back in the day. Um, oh. I mean, he was just he was just a, a singer in a in a little rock and roll band. Um, <laughs> but uh, yes, he's because I, I I remember he's getting very irate because they did a, they did a very funny um, bit on their album in which they. Um, have a doctor give it reading out um, a dictation and it's all about someone being in a comma coma and, and lots of wordplay like that. Um, and I'm thinking, I've heard this before, they've ripped this off from plant songs and, 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 and then Googling it and discovered that uh, he obviously at that point become the writer and had rewritten the, uh, the thing from the album on now onto a, uh, a radio four uh, comedy oh. show. <laughs> so as Sam has mentioned, we are moving on to a new director this month with Sam's return and we are, 
checking out for the end of season three one of one of the heavyweights one of one of the big guns of of the film world we are looking at alfred hitchcock and we are kicking off with his very first directing credit 1925's the pleasure garden Pleasure Garden is, in many ways, a very simple morality tale of um, early Hollywood. It's a tale of two chorus line girls, Patsy and Jill, um, who uh, sort of meet through a a sort of meet-cute in which one of them turns up to to, to audition for a a chorus line girl job um, and gets robbed and can't stay there. From there, they have very wildly diverging sort of histories and destinies. One heading up in the world, whether rightfully or wrongly, um, to marry a prince. The other one kind of falling into uh, more drama um, and falling in in, in, in love with, a, with a, a a more a less good man, shall we say? Um, and it's about the sort of the the diverging stories of of those two two dancers. It is a film, a black and white silent film from 1955, so going into it you have to adjust your expectations as a modern movie watcher of what you want and expect from a movie. That being said, Sam, you've often been a proponent of the earlier films over my more sort of uh, 90s onwards focus. How did you find The Pleasure Garden? I I quite enjoyed it. It was... I th- I think what I particularly enjoyed about it was the fact that it was Alfred Hitchcock quite evidently trying things out, and you could see that this was going to be a, a great director of suspenseful. It's not a word, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Fil- films that you use suspense very well. Um, so yeah, I I enjoyed sort of. Several sort of knowing nods to the future of architecture there, and there were. I mean, okay, I I do prefer. I have have set this all out for some of the earlier films we've done, but this is maybe even a bit too early for me. Um, it it was it, it was very very jerky and stop start, and the narrative sometimes didn't make didn't make entirely. Entirely makes sense from the beginning. Um, so, yes, I wasn't sure about it throughout, but yeah, I did. I, I enjoyed this as a sort of a, a prototype for Alfred Hitchcock's career. I think it's good that we that we did this one first before some of his later films. Yeah, I agree. I think I'm very much in the same, in the same boat as you, that the film, like to say I enjoyed the film is kind of the wrong question to ask, I suppose. Um, mm. it, it feels like more like a cultural artifact rather than a piece of media to be consumed and enjoyed. Um, yes. Because, you know, whilst obviously that, that there is certainly value in old films and enjoyment in old films, this is so, I mean, 1925 is very early Hollywood. Um, the sort of the language of movies that we understand and the framing is all to be built at this point. Um, mm. So that there are so, so many layers of, of critical and cultural understanding to get us here that it was a, a curious. And you say like, you can you can start to see the 
the obsessions that we may touch on later in these movies of Hitchcock and his movies and the sort of the stories he wants to tell. Sort of, you see the 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 sort of the seeds of that here, the germination of that. Um, but it, it, it it's aesthetics, its style is certainly kind of keeping a modern audience at bay, certainly for me. Um, mm. But I enjoyed it. You know, it, it it's, a, it's a brisk hour, basically, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you know, it, you can you can buy into the world, and I think there are whilst it's it's hard to judge things like acting in, in silent films compared to sort of the modern expe- expectation of acting. Um, I believe the characters. I felt that there was pathos in in the story of um, of Patsy um, and uh, and Jill. Well, not as much Jill. Jill being the more social climber, shall we say, the more sort of money grabbing of the two. Uh, Patsy's story, um, in which he's kind of left behind and sort of falls in love with the, with the wrong man, has some pathos to it. I think that's partly to do with the uh, the performances given. I did something I'd think about sort of thematically with this film. I thought this was very politically progressive in a way that surprised me for such an early film. It felt, and I, I suppose, I suppose around about that time, it's not altogether surprising, but it just... It felt like this was a film about female empowerment, about female autonomy, and it, I suppose in in a very what was then still in a very male-dominated world, Cecil to Bill and the other big players in Hollywood at the time are all famous, famous rich men, mm. um, and it felt like this was a story about women in Hollywood and women responding to the control of men. Sometimes I'm mean, gonna get the feeling that from like from even from Jill's interactions with Hamilton right at the beginning, when he said, How does five five pound a week sound? And she said immediately, Oh come on, you know I'm worth more than that, was start at twenty. And it was just like that sort of I, I was quite surprised by how so how progressive that felt. Mm. I mean, the thing is, is this film's nineteen twenty-five, um, and we haven't really got time in this 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 episode to go too much into this. But this, it was isn't technically a pre-code film. Um, it is it exists in the day before the Hayes Code. Now, those who don't aren't aware of that, the Hayes Code essentially was a, a morality code brought in for Hollywood in about nineteen twenty-nine. Um, and but late twenties, early thirties, we brought in this uh, the Hayes movie, movie production code, um, and so these pre-code films, as they're known, and this isn't a pre-code tends to apply to talkies pre, and this is being a silent film isn't technically pre-code, but they do have this kind of the freedom and Hollywood. We often think of like old Hollywood being a bit more staid, a bit more serious, not really having the sort of the edge of modern movies. Mm. Um, and a lot of that comes from this code era in which there, there are these do's and don'ts and you know shouldn'ts and avoids and that kind of stuff. Um, we think of that, but there is this brief period before all that in which there wasn't this ethical and eth- ethical. I, I say in kind of inverted commas because the ethics may not be the ethics we want, but this does sit in that kind of ballpark of you know this the the, the transgressive nature of this of murder of sexual sort of proclivities and cheating and marriage and a social climber and all of this and these, these less than less than less than sort of honorable people um 
these films exist in that era um and i think this is a good example of that whilst obviously it isn't it isn't technically pre-code um because that, that is a very narrow definition but it does exist before mm. the code days something i heard on i heard quite recently on the uh no such thing the fish podcast it was a fact about um it, one of the the code stipulations haze code was that in any kiss, you had to have at least two feet in the couple on the ground. Otherwise, it was sexually transgressive and forbidden. So when you have a woman lying down on a couch and a man stands over to her to kiss her, he has to keep both feet flat on the floor. Mm. And that was... Uh, actually, th- thinking back, after you said that, I just thought about... That scene with Patsy and Hugh, where she bends over him to tend him, and there's something quite modern about the way that she sort of goes off her feet to embrace him. Yeah, it, it, so it, it is that it, it exists before sort of the, the morality of the era kicked in, mm. um, and I, I think it's better for that. I think it's stronger for that. You know, yeah. these films can be quite. And it's sterile, and they can, they can be a quite sort of that remove we talk about from these movies is because they are so I'd know antithesis of what we expect these days from originally. These films are very realist in many ways. Um, mm. It's got a small element at the end of, of this kind of floating vision of of his um, his now dead mistress, but that feels more fever induced than sort of a a uh, sort of formulist idea. So it's. We expect that kind of realism here, and we don't get that in the, these sort of pro code films. Was here, you're right, it does feel more kind of active and real. Hmm. Yeah. Um. I did something I wanted to talk about to take it back to some of the tropes that Hitchcock will 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 see later on in the month. Um. It felt very much like the dog barking at. Hugh and not Levitt or the other way around it, that felt very much like a clue and mm. then Patsy says at the end oh he had it right all along and you think well that is a classic I mean that's going back to Arthur Conan Doyle and the dog not barking in the night time that's, that's a, it's a huge huge part of the detective story was how a dog responds to people Mm. This relationship between a dog and and his owners. Um, I thought that was interesting that even in the film, which is although as you said, is is sort of transgressive in certain ways, is about um, sexual freedom and about um, the wrongdoings of this husband, is basically a straightforward romantic drama. Even in that, there is this sort of thread of a detective story of something to do with suspense that that Hitchcock will come back to later in his career. Yes. Yeah, I think it, you know it, it's. I think I think you're right. That, that kind of that element of of mistrust and that element of um, a thriller is is something to uh, to uh, sort of run with and they also with Hitchcock and I can't claim to be the greatest Hitchcock sort of um, 
study in the world but i think there's an element there of this kind of the reversal of a character you know when we open the film jill is the one who turns up for her, inter- her interview gets robbed has nowhere to stay and you're very much from the early scenes she's your protagonist she's your sympathy she's the person who you're supposed to identify with yeah so much so that i got confused halfway through Yes. I'd forgotten it was Jill who was the ingenue coming into town at the start. I thought that was Patsy. Um, and you and this kind of switch at a certain point where you realize, oh no, Jill Jill isn't the per- she isn't the hero of this story. She isn't the she's the you know, she's the she's the one who we don't like. She's the one who's kind of social climber, abandoning her friends, that kind of thing. And the more confident girl we start you know, the good becomes the bad and the bad becomes the good. Mm. Um, and you know it, it's, and then the, the element of that, which is was it long where we, these characters who we think are that kind of that, almost that film noir element of you know the femme fatale, and and this other thing that the the, uh, the beautiful Patsy, uh, shall we say, um, who turns out to be the, the the sweetheart all along, that kind of thing. Like, there's a real element of that being played here. Mm. Yeah. So do you have? I mean, it is tricky with something like this to have sort of strict recommendations, but do you have anything that's thrown up in your mind that's suggested by this? Um, it's Yes, um, but I, it's kind of a, a whole genre um, that I'm going to pick one out of and talk about. So my recommendation is the 1933 film 42nd Street. Um, this, is, this is actually a pre-code film, um, though it has now been re- revived as a, a Broadway musical. Um, so, Forty Second Street is what is known as a backstage musical. Now, backstage musicals are a sort of a, a genre in themselves, in which they are an early Hollywood musical, um, but in which the musical scenes, the music, are the performance. So they, it isn't like a, a musical interlude where characters break into song in a way that they wouldn't in the real world. There's this fusing of the realism of the era's films and, say, the formalism of musicals into this backstage where we are involved in the lives and the day-to-day sort of romances and heartbreaks of the backstage crew. Mm. So the musical numbers are the performance on the stage. They are, they are the characters actually being performers and performing their stage. And then we go backstage and see them. And that had, right. I mean, th- this is a sort of a, a whole genre. Um, the most famous sort of proponent of this is someone called Busby Berkeley, who a lot of people have heard of. And if you haven't heard of him, you will have seen his work. It is the the top down circles of girls swimming in, you know, legs kicking in the air, and the kind of concentric circles and the symbolism and the the uh, symmetry of, of this kind of era of musical. A lot of it comes from these Berkeley musicals. And I felt that there was a real feeling that given that we, we kind of leave the, the, the chorus line behind pretty fast when it comes to Pleasure Garden. Um, but it is there. The, these are dancing girls who we kind of, we have an opening scene in which they do perform. Um, and we have these kind of leering, lecherous viewers. And then we move behind the scenes. And whilst it isn't a musical and it doesn't go down those kind of aesthetics, there's certainly a, a through line from this film towards the more kind of musical-based musicals so Forty Second Street is probably one of the biggest names of this genre it's well known I say it is now a a stage show you can go and see so if you haven't seen it um, and you are interested in this kind of pre-code era um, this is a very good one to check out so yeah Forty Second Street only one this week as you say it's a hard film to pull recommendations from um, right but that's mine I have well it, it's very hard and for that reason of my two I haven't seen one of them 
Um, so I'll go with the one that I've seen first, and it's a fairly obvious one. It's a film from a similar time. It's a 1927 film. Um, it's another... Although The Pleasure Garden was um, set in London primarily, it was filmed in Munich. So this is... It links links to another to a German film are strong. It's the twenty seven film Metropolis, um, and I I felt that well you you've said at the beginning that the pleasure the the question did you enjoy it of the pleasure garden is kind of the wrong question but I felt like the pleasure garden was more enjoyable than Metropolis. Um, I mean, I appreciated what Metropolis was doing at points and at others. I thought, right, come on, just get on with it. Um, but I, I think in terms of, as you said, in terms of seeing something as a cultural artefact, then Metropolis is an important one. My second recommendation is the one I haven't seen. Um so Carmelita Garetti, who plays Jill, was a year later in the first film version of um, a text that will be quite familiar to prestige listeners. It's uh, of Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Mm. The most recent version we've talked about was the Baz Luhrmann a few years ago, but the first version was... Um, Actually, it's same year, 1926. When was this? 1925. So, a year later, 1926, um, is the, the version, the silent version, Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. So, I haven't seen that, but it, it might well be an interesting one to hunt out. Fair enough, fair enough. That's interesting. So, guys, that's our first episode on Africa. We are coming back next week. We're jumping forward many, many, 22 or three years, I think it is, in the future, um, towards his uh, 1948 movie, Rope. So come check us out there. I've got a couple of announcements before we wrap up, guys. Um, firstly, we are approaching, obviously, the end of season three, and we always like to do a something special for our 100, at this point, 150th episode. So we're going to be doing something slightly different this year, and we're going to be doing a, a film voting bracket, I suppose, shall we say, in which we pull together the best films that we think of from our 150 episodes, and we'll be pitting them against each other. And we will be kind of narrowing them down to find basically the best film that we have reviewed so far. Um, now, we need your help with this to start with obviously the voting once you get sort of going but to did now right now we are short some films so sam and i have put together a list of should we call them the play-in rounds um in which we've got a i believe it's one or two slots still available for our, our bracket so on the uh kaiju fm if you go to kaiju.fm forward slash bracket you can find there a, 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 a poll in which you can vote for your favourite film from this list. This isn't obviously this isn't going to be the top films. These are this is our 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 last place basically. We're trying to pull together. So we've got our thing. We've got we've got 30, 30 films, um, and we need the last two from you guys. So please go on there and vote. I'll be putting more links to this on Twitter and Facebook and all that kind of stuff. Um, but if you want to sort of help us pull together the the last two films for our bracket, please go take a check that out. The link will be in the show notes as well. Secondly, as always, guys, we make this show for free. Um, we kind of we like making it for you. We don't have advertising on the show. We kind of just kind of put it out there. Um, but there are some bills to pay. There are some things we need to keep paid to keep the lights on, 
keep things rolling around here. If you like what we do here and you like the prestige, you like the sort of the shows we make even here or any of the shows on Code FM, please consider giving to our Patreon. A couple of quid here and there really helps us keep things going. We've got some rewards. You can kind of, you know, get a shout out on the show. You can get some merch. You can get some bonus episodes. Um, and if you give us enough money, you can even pick a movie for this show or pick a topic for another show. So if you like what we do here, and you want to keep us kind of going. We really, really appreciate um, see your support there. If not there, just give us a review on iTunes. Tell your friends about us. Tell everyone who likes movies about our show. We really appreciate everything you do for us. Till then, you can find us both on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You can find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll see you back here next week for Rope.